February 14 is this week, and whether you celebrate Valentine's Day or Galentine or even Palentine's Day, we can assure you that you will not regret coming to IC this week to watch Ben Hammer's film 1001 Grams. I am Marilla Oskerson, IC assistant director, and today with me in the booth is Chip Oskerson. Chip is Associate Dean of Undergraduate Education and Director of the University General Education Program. He teaches Scandinavian Studies as well as Interdisciplinary Humanities with an emphasis in environmental literature and film. He is a former Director of International Cinema. One of his favorite classes to teach at BYU is a GE class on German and Scandinavian Cinema. If you know uh, Chip, you know that he loves to hike. He's very active. He's a runner. He's a cross-country skier and a lover of nature. And his best role in life? Being my husband. Don't you agree, Chip? Welcome to the booth. I would never disagree with that. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, um, Bent Hammer is a Norwegian filmmaker. A Kitchen Story from 2003 was at IC a few years ago. It talks about um, the Swedish Home Research Institute initiative to make kitchens more effective and sending scientists um, into the kitchens to observe them. It's pretty funny, huh? It's pretty funny. Yeah, it's a funny film. Um, ben Hammer is is really good at taking real life situations, and in the in the example of kitchen stories, this this really did happen, right? Where there's this institute studying. What's the most effective way to do housework? And it was part of of an initiative in the in the fifties that I mean even things like IKEA um, today the you know the furniture store is kind of you know part of that legacy of you know functionality you know kind of guiding design principles. And so they they were trying to study what's you know how to design efficient kitchens. And he picks up on this one you know kind of little minor history of this for kitchen stories in that he. He follows these scientists that go to Norway to study the kitchen habits of bachelor <laughs> farmers in Norway. And it's, of course, absurd. You have these people sitting in a chair in the corner of the kitchen, supposedly not interacting with the people using the kitchens. And of course, what happens right away is that the farmers stop using their kitchens because they don't like being observed, right? And so it's it's playing with that whole kind of dynamic of it's impossible to observe something without affecting it. And and with kitchen stories, as with 1001 Grams, what's really great about Ben Hammer is he takes these situations that, um, I mean, sometimes it's based on a real story or not, and he kind of shows a certain absurdity with mm -hmm. modern life and, and some of the assumptions we make, you know, about modern life. And a lot of it is to to return us to a sense of humanity that's usually grounded in in people and relationships between people and and not things. And what a great overview of 1001 grams because in 1001 grams we do leave the Swedish Home Research Institute to follow our uh, the main character Marie Ernst who is a researcher of the Norwegian Institute of Weights and Measures. So um would you help us understand a little bit more about the the history of of weights? Because that's the context of our film. Yes. I mean, it seems, again, th there's a kind of absurdity that seems to be going on here. <clears throat> there's a certain kind of absurdity that seems to be going on here in that you actually have a physical artifact that defines what a kilogram is in Norway. And at the time of the filming of this, that was actually true. There was actually a physical kilogram, a weight, 
um, that you know becomes the reference point for all weights and measures in Norway, and um, and internationally the the Norwegian kilogram is referenced to a physical kilogram that's in Paris, right? And and the history of that goes back to post-revolutionary France. There's a, the first prototype is made in the late 1700s, and then it's eventually replaced in 1889 with this, you know, the kilogram that defines all other kilograms. And it, I mean, it almost seems absurd that all of the weights and measures that we think about in the world are referenced to an actual kilogram somewhere. Now, this has, has actually been replaced in 2019. There was a replacement of the actual physical kilogram with um, other ways of, of determining what a kilogram was. But what's really interesting is that this reference point, it's not only weights and kind of kilograms that are affected, but it's other sorts of things as well that all depend, other kinds of measurements that depended on what a kilogram was. And this is what the film is, is kind of playing with. You know, um, Marie, our... Um, you know, the protagonist in the film, she lives a really uh, empty and sterile life um, that her relationship with her father seems to be one of the only functional relationships you know, she has. And and what's happening over the first part of the film is that you see all of the reference points of her life begin to fall apart, especially as her father gets ill. And yeah, she is in a lot of ways this kilogram, right, that it's it's this kind of her reference points are all falling away. And, and we're left asking, well, what's, what's actually really important? Is it the, the absolute reference, right? The absolute point that can't change? Or is it the relationship between things that's more important? Another aspect of, of um, this film that is interesting is what happens in between spaces. Can you talk a little bit about that in between space? Yeah, so if you follow the um, the mise en scène of the film, that you you spend a lot of time in uh, the Norwegian Institute of Weights and Measures. That in fact, the opening shots of the film I think are really striking, in that we have no, we don't have humans. We have all these machines that are are you know passing around this you know this weight. Uh, there's something very uh, sterile, very mechanic. Blues and whites dominate the mise en scène in in all of this, and the moments of of humanity that we get. Um, characters will find each other in in literally these tight spaces between the buildings where they smoke and they actually have real conversations, right? And those real conversations aren't happening in you know in the you know the space of the institute itself, and um, and so in between spaces are are important because they're they're what happens in between these points of reference, right? Another really important in between space in this film is she moves through customs every time she goes down to Paris which she has to several times in the film, she has to go through customs and she's carrying this very strange thing, the Norwegian kilogram. And, and the uh, customs agents want to inspect what it is. And she has to tell them, oh, no, you, you actually can't do that. Like you can't touch it, right? Because touching it will change ever so slightly the weight. It has to be in this very controlled um, environment, the sterile controlled environment, right? Where everything is, uh, is, is ordered and predictable. And of course, this is exactly what her life is not. And and things, you know, happen that, um, you know, that erode this, this predictability, not only in her own life, but in the life of the Norwegian kilogram as well, that has to be repaired um, and kind of brought back into alignment. And the way that that's going to happen um, is not by buckling down on order and control, but actually in learning to let go a little bit. So these in-between spaces, the, the customs, which is in between two, you know, two places, the place that you move in between or the in-between of the buildings, these are important spaces. 
You mentioned uh, the colors. You talked about all the blues and the whites in, in Norway and especially around um, Marie. Can you talk a little bit more about the color palette of this fa film and how it evolves with the, the changes uh, in the main character who is Marie? Yeah, the, the blues, you know, they're very cold colors, the blues and the whites, and it, I think it suggests the sterility. Um, her house is a great example of this, right? It's a very modern structure, and it's it's all white. She has uh, either divorced or separated from her husband, who's slowly, literally like a thief in the night, coming in to, you know, to take, you know, presumably the things that belong to him. And so there's exactly half of the house is basically missing. You know, over the course of the film, more and more things are being are being taken. Um And, and we never get the interaction between them. We don't really understand the relationship other than it seems to have, you know, completely, you know, fallen apart. But it's a good example of one of these really kind of white and cold, you know, places. In contrast to this is her father's farm. And in, on the farm, uh, the hayloft and, uh, you know, the kind of the, the warmer, kind of richer, you know, colors of the hay, you know, that kind of yellow, tan yellow becomes um, a significant contrast color that shows up not only there on the farm, but also in places in Paris. And the color palette in Paris is also very different than what you get um, in, in Norway. And it is these warmer colors and pointing towards um, the kind of relationship that she's uh, going to form with um, uh, the love interest, Pi, um, in, uh, in Paris. And, uh, and so you'll see, you know, when you start seeing those colors, you know that something's shifting and something's changing, that it's, it's exerting a kind of power and, and gravitational pull on the character to be something different. Uh, the other thing that I'll mention in terms of just mise-en-scene, in addition to the, the color scheme, is uh, something to watch for, uh, for those seeing the film, is the way that the frame is used. So often you get... Um, you know, an image going on the frame, he tends to use a very static frame. Uh, you do have some camera movement, but he, he likes things to move in and out of his frame. And we're always interested in what's just beyond the frame. Uh, we get shots of people looking at things, but we don't know what they're looking at. But we, you know, he builds up that anticipation to be able to see, you know, what, what it is. And I think that it's a way of playing with this idea of reference, right? That that we're we're wanting to know what the reference point is that's outside of that frame that seems to be giving meaning to that frame. And that's a very kind of clever way to enact this philosophical problem that he's that he's posing in the context of a romantic comedy, you know, really, about how we live our life using these reference points, but these reference points are oftentimes nowhere near as fixed and as constant as we like to believe they are. And to illustrate this point, there's like two scenes that come to mind. The first one, they're at the Institute of Weights and Measures in Paris, and you have all those researchers with their weights, and they look very much alike. And they have, it's raining, they have this striking blue umbrella, they're walking down an alley, they're just behind each other, and it's very mechanical. And then you have... And, and there's something kind of absurdist about it too. Oh, like it's, I mean, yes. it's definitely comical. It's a subtle comedy. Yeah. It's always, there's not a lot of laugh out loud kind of moments, but, but it's definitely, um, th there's a lot of humor in those kinds of shots. There's th that absurdity that he's like, I can't believe people are actually doing this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And then to, to the back, um, you, you can see, uh, that, um, the French, love interest P is coming and he's wearing really different clothes. They're comfortable. He does not have an umbrella. He's the, uh, he's a scientist as well, but um, he's as well the groundkeeper. He's moving away from this life of constraints and measures and weights and literally 
um, to be to follow his passion and to be with plants. And the contrast between those two, the group of science, the, the researchers with the kilogram, and and the French love interest, I thought I thought was was beautiful. Yeah. The, well, the, I, I love his name Pi too because it, of course, you know, Pi is you know the Greek letter that you know is also a you know a, a, a geometrical term, but it's it's a constant. But it's a constant that can't be defined, right? That it it's a you know it's a number that um, goes into infinity, and so we can get very 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 precise with pi, but we can never one hundred percent define pi. It always eludes us, and I think that that's that's what he's teaching Marie to do is to not live life in 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 such a way where everything has to be this exact kind of orderly thing, but to um, to let go a little bit and to embrace relationality as opposed to kind of absolutism or something like that. And we see the difference. The other scene as well goes well into this comment that, um, that I, that I have in mind about, um, showing the contrast between things that are just really well organized and, and other things that are representing chaos in, in her, um, own relationship with her ex-husband or they're getting a divorce. It's, It's obvious they are not talking to each other. They could have been, yelling at each other. They could have been arguing. They could have been, no, they don't even meet. Their their eyes meet. They look at each other. He is taking all the objects from, from the house that belong to him like a thief. And she is always in her car coming in and he's right there. She waits in the car and she watches him. And I think that um, that way to describe the relationship was very powerful because it allows me to use my own imagination to understand what's going on. Yeah, and no, I think that's exactly right, that he loves this kind of understatement. And it's an understated humor. It's an understated, you know, kind of philosophical argument, you know, that, you know, that's being made. There's a few, you know, kind of really key lines that, you know, that really try to, you know, sum these things up. But but a lot of it is, um, yeah, it's, it's it relies on, on the, the spectator, kind of becoming involved and kind of thinking through and, and imagining this and becoming their own reference point, you know, for it. Now, the title is interesting. 1,001 grams. Would you tell us, because it's about the kilogram, exactly 1,000 grams, why 1,001 grams? Yeah, that's it's a really good question. I think that there's um, part of it is uh, is the trajectory of Marie learning to embrace things not being exact in her life. Um, that exactness is great when you when you want to know exactly how much gas you're putting in your car or you know the other kinds of things that she's measuring, right, and kind of calibrating. That's great for those sorts of things, but it's not great for personal relationships, right? And it's not a great way to, you know, to live life. Um, at one point in time, there's, uh, you know, the comment is made that the, the soul weighs 21 grams, you know, that they're, you know, referring to some, you know, perhaps somewhat suspect scientific, um, you know, experiments where, you know, the moment a person dies that their, that their mass decreases by 21 grams. Um, so there's a scene where she's, she's weighing her, her father's ashes and they weigh a thousand and grams. And, um, and then it decreases suddenly inexplicably by 21 grams, right? As if the soul of her father was finally leaving. But that of course leaves her or leaves the ashes at 1,001 grams, right? Not 1,000 grams. It's not that kind of exactness that there's, the, you know, we're just a little bit off and kind of embracing that that we don't have to have um, kind of a one-to-one exact reference, but it's about the relationship 
um, which is messy and inexact that she has with her father. That's what's, you know, that's what's more important. And I think that's what we're moving to in the whole trajectory of the film and, and where she ends up with, um, you know, with this relationship with Pi is, is likewise. What Pi helps her to do is to leave the world of the laboratory where things are controlled and exact and, and embrace a messier kind of world, right? Where measurements are, are made in terms of reference you know, to, to human experience in the human body. Um, and, and this comes across really um, in the Norwegian in a way that, um, or I guess in French as well, uh, in a way that, you know, doesn't come across in English where you talk about measurements like an inch. And that's an abstract measurement in English, but in French, an inch is pouce, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, and in Norwegian, body. it's a tum, right? Yeah. So it's, yes, yeah, referring to the thumb, yeah. you know, because the thumb is roughly an inch mm -hmm. wide. And that that's an older way of measuring. And there's limitations to that way of measuring, of course, that it, it's not universal. You know, you can have a big thumb or a little thumb. And so it's going to be inexact, but it can work really well for, you know, for certain kinds of things. And the, and the, the emphasis and the point is that it places it in reference to, to us and to lived experience. And so there's these you know, really fantastic scenes that one of Pi's hobbies is recording um, the, the sounds, what he refers to as the dialects of birds. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's a great example of, well, you know, how are you going to define a dialect of a, of a bird? Yes, they kind of sound different, but how do you, how do you right, that there's going to be something really exact and it requires going out into nature to, you know, to record things. And, and research in the field that way is fundamentally different than research in a laboratory, right? Because you can't deal with the same kind of exactness. There's a messiness that comes with being in an ecosystem and, and trying to do that kind of work. And so, and, and of course, this is all supported with this, you know, the color, you know, scheme, you know, that's changing the light changes and you get an entirely different look and feel at these moments when she's uh, with Pi at the end of the film. Well, so invitation to go see this film this week and, um, and experience this meditation on the meaning of life, the meaning of weight, and also um, of the soul. And it's a romantic comedy. It is. <laughs> and the deadpan wheat is 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 fun. Yeah, no, great, great programming for for Valentine, Galentine, Palentine week, whatever you whatever we're calling it. Um, it is. I think it's a it's a, a great way to think about human relationships. Very good. Thank you so much. And thank you all for joining us today on From the Booth. We're grateful for the support of the BYU College of Humanities. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent official views of the university nor its supportive institutions. Work on the sound is by Hayden Underwood. Original music by Joni, Stephen, and Greg Stallings. To all, a warm thank you. Until next time, we hope to see you in 250 of the Kimball Tower. Thank you. Goodbye, Chip. Goodbye. Thanks for having me.